Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Minority Report. In a future where a special police unit is able to arrest murderers before they commit their crimes, an officer from that unit is himself accused of a future murder. Yep. You know, you say yup, and sometimes I don't know what it means. I don't think I know what it means. <laughs> This is a film by Steven Spielberg. It's a very odd movie for Steven Spielberg to make. So there are parts of this that when I'm watching it, I'm like, yeah, this is Steven. This is a Steven film. The sci-fi element, sure. The action-y parts of it where I'm like, oh, this is like futuristic Indiana Jones. Sure. Well. There's there's elements of it that feel like that. Sure. Okay. And then I'm just like, no. (laughs) He's trying to make a sci-fi noir flick. Yeah. And you don't hear Spielberg and think noir or sci-fi. Well. Sci-fi adjacent, but he doesn't. He's, I would never call him a sci-fi guy ever. Like we did Close Encounters and that's a sci-fi film. Sure. And he's done E.T. Sure. But. Those stories, because of the way those sto- those are done, I don't consider those sci-fi films. Here's what it is. They are sci-fi only to the extent where the plot involves something sci-fi within it. Yes. But they are human dramas first and foremost. Correct. And that's, that's what he's really good at. Exactly. He's really good at taking a sure. genre and then building these really solid, interesting characters inside of it. This... But I don't know. Is not that. I don't know that that's true because he can't. Noir is not something he can do. No, it's clearly not. Clearly, no. You know what? Here's what I will give him credit for for this movie. He tries. He does try. He's not not making choices. It's not a boring movie. It's a messy movie. Oh, it's, it is. It's and, very messy. And then we get into all of the really icky, icky shit they throw in it. Oh, well, yeah, there's a lot of icky shit in it. It, do- it does feel icky. And now in the year 2020, it just feels more icky. The plot and the story it's based on are actually really cool. Like the basic element of pre-crime, of studying that, and, and the themes around it, that's an evergreen thing to think. Through. No, no, I, I like the concept of we have some people with some supernatural abilities and we're going to use those to stop bad things from happening. That's great. That's really cool. So, okay, so what happens when the person who's working on stopping the crimes, the cop, is now foreseen to have done something bad? <laughs> well, <laughs> here's, here's one thing. You cast the wrong person to play that character. You cast the wrong person to do that. And then you overcomplicated the plot. I mean, the the fact that they're essentially crack babies. Well, there's... Which is just... I was like, why is that somehow their magical gift? Well, there's that. Which, I have to, I have to be fair to them, might be... I haven't read the story, might be a part of Philip K. Dick's book. Maybe. What I would have liked... In terms of that element. So the story is just too messy because there's too many elements. We've got a cop who is basically on drugs because he's trying to deal with the fact that his son was taken from him. And as far as they know, murdered. Yes. And as far as I know, that is from the basic outline plot that they're jumping from. Okay. So that's a whole story in and of itself. So that's why he's a cop. And then we have... One of the precogs is having this vision over and over and over again, trying to tell us what actually happened to their parents. Yep. Which that thing is actually really cool. I love that part. That part is awesome. But the thing is, it's all the little subplots, a part of it, which don't work (laughs) because they, they take too long and they take away from the central idea and I would have liked it better if with like the precogs, they weren't crack babies, but they're just people with the supernatural ability. And so maybe he has to go find former precogs. Well, why aren't you precog anymore? It's like, I only have so much of this ability. And at a certain point, it just wears out and I'm no longer reliable as a precog. Or something like that, where it's like actually 
like something that it's a muscle. It it it's just it not this horrible thing. Or our visions didn't fit their narrative, which is the crux of this story. Exactly. I only seem to see petty crime. I didn't see murders. I didn't see, you know, theft. You know, so I I I wasn't good enough for them. I, Stuff like that. Philip K. Dick is <laughs> it's not is not a writer whose adaptations should be helmed by Steven fucking Spielberg. Well, he's also a writer whose work should not be taken lifted directly from the page ever. Uh, I don't know. Mm. It has it, it has its elements. The problem is is that he is such a dark dark dude well, who dealt with dark shit. So the story is just so, so messy and it wanders too much on something that, especially with sci-fi, you really need a tight story. And about halfway through this movie, all of the really cool, like, whoa, future stuff Mm -hmm. just gets old. And that's kind of all you're left with with this movie. Mm -hmm. Because by the end, the resolution is just so like, well, duh. Mm -hmm. Why am I shocked? None of this is in any way surprising or interesting to me. Yeah. Well, the budget for this movie was $102 million. Yeah, sounds about right. Now, that's pretty low for the time. It was 2002. Yeah. Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg waived their salary mm-hmm. to keep that budget right around $100 million. They took a percentage, didn't they? They each got 15% gross off this film. That's a large percentage. But also, like, they... Their fees, they're $20 million guys at this point. They can command that fee. Yeah. So taking 15% to take a film and be like, I'm not going to get $20 million. And if this makes no money, I did this entire film for nothing. Yeah. But if it makes $100 million, it makes the entire budget back, I get my fee. It opened in the US to $36 million. Uh-huh. Its US gross was $132 million. Globally, it made $358 million. It was a decent, moderate success. So they made slightly more than their fee. They made good money. They barely did okay. Yeah, I don't know. I here's the thing: this movie was so giantly marketed. Oh, like I, I remember, and and it was marketed also all the way through the development of the movie, like mm-hmm. all the research that was done to create the future world, which is impeccably done. The design. And the thought put into the design of the movie mm-hmm. is outstanding. Kind of like all the other Spielberg we've watched up until this point. Yeah. But I don't even know if this is really Steven's fault so much as it is the writing. Well. Who knows? Yeah. However, Lilo and Stitch actually sold more tickets for that opening weekend. <clears throat> but this won because at least half of those tickets were half price because they were children's tickets. Oh, yeah, that's true. So this won the box office. Hmm. It was also up against the live-action Scooby-Doo that year. Wow. <laughs> so this was the grown-up movie at the box office that weekend. Here's what I can tell you. I saw Scooby-Doo. <laughs> In 2002, I saw Scooby-Doo. Instead of this? Instead of this and instead of Lilo and Stitch, because I hate Lilo and Stitch. Lilo and Stitch is amazing. You shut your face. I I have grown to appreciate Lilo and Stitch, but at the time, I just found it obnoxious. Well, fair. Now I can't appreciate it. So anyway, this movie did just fine. Okay. And again, marketing. Yeah. They marketed the shit out of this movie. Marketing and it was, works. And it was Tom Cruise. People went to go see it. Mm-hmm. I went to go see it. And that gets us to our writing. Mm-hmm. So we, of course, start off with the short story written by Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know him from Blade Runner and A Scanner Darkly. Other movies that we've talked about or watched in the past, he's one of the main inspirations for kind of the new age dark sci-fi. Okay. We then have Scott Frank. Before this, he wrote Dead Again, Little Man Tate, Malice, Get Shorty, and Out of Sight. After this, he wrote Flight of the Phoenix, The Interpreter, The Lookout, The Wolverine, A Walk Among the Tombstones, Logan, and The Queen's Gambit for television. Oh, which is just becoming gangbusters on netflix right now we also have john cohen this is his only credit Hmm. and we have uncredited john august who amongst other things wrote go the 2002 charlie's angels and big fish okay 
We have some really talented writers here. I mean, like, they've done some good stuff. But? <laughs> but it didn't equate to a good story. Like, each element can be good and isn't bad. But all together, it's too messy. And this movie is way too long for what it's trying to do. And it, it's just too many subplots. What's the subplot you would cut out? His <sighs> I, wife? Probably his whole backstory. I don't care about him at all because it's not about him. The only thing that's about him is that he gets pinned for a future crime and that's the problem. And that's it. I don't need him to have a tragic backstory. The only thing that complicates this for him is that he's also an addict. That's it. So get rid of all of that. Get rid of all the stuff with his son. That cuts out easily 30 minutes gets rid of some creepy stuff as well oh god the confrontation scene and the bait and switch on that of the stakes being risen to that level mm -hmm. like at the time in 2002 it washed over me because i was just like whoa cool special effects yeah i'm watching it now i'm just like oh yeah it's gross and so yeah it's just unnecessary and it honestly has no weight in the resolution of the story. It really, truly doesn't. Yeah, like the original short story, a note that I saw, the whole point is that Anderton, mm -hmm. who is also like a fat, balding, middle-aged man in that story, which is neither here nor there in casting for a movie sure. star per se, but it is interesting that it was like, this is like a mm -hmm. middle-of-the-road bureaucrat in the sure. middle of his story. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is that Anderton has to make the choice, is he going to commit murder or not? Mm -hmm. And he, in Dick's story, which, again, dark, sure. he kills the guy yeah. because he believes in pre-crime so much yeah. that he wants to fulfill it to make it keep working. Yeah, see, all of that is just ridiculous. And, and we kind of touch on that at the end, but that should be the driving thing. Yeah. Like, you, you have devoted your entire life to this system, but now it is... It is coming back to you, and are you going to go through with it or not? Mm -hmm. And then have the precog come in and realize, wait a minute. Yeah. So it is messy. It, it leads to, we'll talk about later, a very interesting theory that on the one hand is a fun fan theory, but on mm -hmm. the other hand, it shows a gaping plot hole in the movie. Sure. But there's a lot of them. There's a lot of big giant Mack trucks you can run through this movie. And then, you know, what's going on with Colin Farrell's, which for a little while it had me going like, oh, well, he's a bad guy. A giant red herring for what reason? And I love his character. Don't get me wrong. But that should have been way more complex than it was. They just mentioned, oh, he's a man of faith. It was like, oh, man, do you know how cool you could have played into that trope? Yeah. And you could have just, yeah, that should have just been way more of a complex relationship and they could have just made the bait and switch on that much bigger. And so it's just, it's, it is very poorly written in that regard. And I think it's just, you didn't have one solid voice for the whole thing to go, oh yeah, this element is really cool, but it's not serving our overall vi vision. And the overall vision never existed. Mm. I think that's the problem. Yeah, it just wasn't there. Originally, this film was supposed to be a sequel to Total Recall, because Total Recall is one of Philip K. Dick's classic novels. I've never seen Total Recall. Neither have I. They Good. changed the setting to Mars from this. Okay. And had the precogs be mutated by the Martian atmosphere. It's not a bad idea. Okay. And you're taking something within the same author's sphere of influence and just putting that plot Tweaking back into it. Tweaking it a little it. bit. Okay. Yeah, all right make a Schwarzenegger movie. He was supposed to come back. Okay. But Carol Co., the company who was going to make it, went bankrupt after producing several bombs. Hmm. They had Cliffhanger, and then they had nothing, apparently. But the original writers to that script held the rights. So they then went about redoing it, stripping away all of the Total Recall sequel stuff hmm. and creating the basis for this script. Okay. John Cohen, who get this is like his only ever credit, He's brought in to redo the script entirely after that original script got tossed. Okay. They looked at it and was like, this is a fucking disaster. So no. He kept one element, which was the fight sequence in the car factory. 
this was a visual that Spielberg loved from that script. That was cool. And it was directly inspired by an unused sequence that Hitchcock made for North by Northwest. Interesting. So Spielberg had this idea in his head, and it just so happened that somebody had written something similar enough that he was like, yes. (laughs) The original writers then sued to have their names added to the script. But because it was almost completely rewritten, they were only able to get executive producer credit. Interesting. Because, I mean, at that point, it's like, this is not your fucking movie anymore. (laughs) No, I I understand the reach, but (laughs) at a certain point, it's like your kernel doesn't really exist anymore. So then Scott Frank, who sounds like a bit of a, like, edgy bro guy. Mm Mm-hmm. He talked about how they actually developed this movie before Spielberg really got in with it Mm -hmm. as a hard R thriller. Hmm. It was going to be The French Connection meets Robocop, which for this movie would be really fucking cool with the right director. Spielberg's not the guy to make that movie. Well, if that was your actual through line in the movie, but that didn't actually materialize. It's all around bad, but I mean... At a certain point, they decided to move away from an hard R rating Mm -hmm. and went for PG-13. And they pulled back Anderton's drug addiction and what was really a dark obsession with what happened to his son. Well, I didn't like that anyways, just because I don't think it provided... I I don't think it was good for the story at all. Well, fair. Perhaps the bleakest part of that original script was going to be its ending. You see, in the ending, the precogs would be sent to a desolate island where nothing grows. Mm. That way they could be far away enough from humanity and life to be able to avoid their visions. Mm. In order to have freedom, they would have to live in pretty much full-on misery. And the closing title would reveal that in the year following the events, there were 130 murders. (laughs) I was like, wow, that's fucking bleak. That's so stupid. Who wants to pay 12 bucks to watch that shit? No one. (laughs) I mean, then again, I saw Blade Runner 2049. It was pretty fucking great. Oh, yeah, that was good. (laughs) That movie is very bleak, but like in a good way. Same thing with Blade Runner. Blade Runner. I wouldn't call Blade Runner. Blade Runner doesn't feel bleak. It depends on which ending you watch, (laughs) because there's a lot of them. Oh, all right. Well, whatever. So there is a theory, and this is the theory that I think is actually a major plot hole. Tech outlet io9 created this entire video that posited that everything in the film after Anderton gets haloed is just a dream vision in his mind. Hmm. That he's in stasis in the prison. Okay. Which again, because the script is so fucking messy, that makes a shit ton of sense. Mm, It does. (laughs) It could be. Because they don't follow through on any of this shit. True. They don't show us that, you know, you could get busted out that easily. Yeah. And the movie really does just like roll fucking downhill with reckless abandon after that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and let's wrap it up. Yeah, it's just like, all right, we're going we're gonna to finish this movie and then we're going to be done. Like he gets put in, in the fucking prison and not five minutes later he's out. Oh, like two seconds. Like his wife is there to talk to him. Uh huh. Which is funny. I was like, "How'd you get in here?" <laughs> I need to speak to my husband. Which is pretty funny. <laughs> but it is funny. But it's also like this makes no sense. And again, that's why part of that that whole subplot needs to go. It's just not good. <sighs> well, who could have been better? They approached Frank Darabont to write a draft of this Ooh. film. He was busy working on the Majestic. Mm. But Shawshank Redemption, Walking Dead, Frank fucking Darabont would do this story justice. Frank Darabont would have been amazing. (sighs) What we could have had. Yeah. Instead, we got this trio of schmucks. He can make something original and way better. He just could have, he could have found the right tone balance. Sure. No, no, I completely agree. And given them something solid to work with instead of this cacophony. Well, now we get to our director. And it's Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah, that guy. That guy that we're talking about a lot. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Steven's directing in this film? <laughs> Again, the one thing I will say for him is he is making bold fucking choices. I don't even, I don't know. For Spielberg, he really is. Okay, but I'm not, I don't want to use a qualifier like that. Well, for this guy, 
Uh, fair. Uh, that feels like such a cop out because it is. This guy has everything he could ever want at his disposal. Money really is no object for him. You know, I, I'm not going to let him get off the hook that way. Well, that that's easily. Yeah. It's, it's not good. The actors don't have any motivation. I mean, the, some of the shots are cool, but it's there's nothing special going on. You know what I will say, too? I hate the fact that he decided to color palette and, and watch this movie this way. And that it was a very specific choice to do that. But like every movie after this, Is they this, fucking pulled this shit. Like every, well, with the exception, with the exception of Terminal, which that's the only movie where this color palette works because he moves out of it in one very specific moment. Here, Here's what he did, because I know. I know this about Schindler's List. It's like, let's make the color palette tell the story and we can have it move away in that one important moment because it's a little girl in the red. Yeah. Okay, that's great. It is. It can be beautiful and a component, but when you do the same trick over and over and over again, it's not impactful anymore. And you're supposed to be telling this story the way this story needs to be told. And this story is supposed to be the future. And the future, okay, his main character's future is living in this futuristic life where he has made murder obsolete. Yeah. His life is bleak as fuck. Yeah. His apartment should be bleak. His office should be bleak. Everything about that should be bleak. The rest of the world should be fucking sunshine and rainbows because murder does not exist. Yeah. Huge misstep. Huge. There is no crime. It should be bright fucking rainbows, thick and span, clean as can be because there's harmony now. But his life is bleak as fuck. And that's where I'm okay with leaving his son back in the story. You don't need to linger on it. But but here's the thing is like, why is his life so bleak? Because There's got to be some reason. And the reason is that he cannot get away from this thing that happened. No, to his him. life can be bleak because he's an addict. Well, that could be true. That could be it. And the whole like, why is he an addict? Because bad shit happened to him before. Things started getting cleaned up. And also, hey, just because we've fixed this element doesn't mean there's not still problems. People still cheat on their spouses. People still steal money. People still do shit. Like, yeah, we've gotten rid of some of this stuff, but the world can still really suck. That's the other thing about this movie. 20 <laughs> other movies did this premise so much better. Yeah. So <laughs> Including she... Blade Runner. <laughs> I, it's not the same premise, but, no, like, but like, the world building is so much better. <laughs> World building's way better. The world building here is shit. It's so bad. So, Steven, your directing sucks here. It's just, it's bad. And then the fact that he inspired so many fucking filmmakers to blue wash their movies based off of this one alone. I don't know. Nah, I don't want to give him credit for that because the other part of this is let's green screen everything and let's use digital scenery. <laughs> it's very 2002. It's not all Steven's fault. This know. movie is the early to mid 2000s uh -huh. blockbuster film. Because it's either blue tone it or sepia tone everything. You know what? I take that back. Soderbergh did it for traffic. Soderbergh did but it. But he did it for a purpose. Digital scenery. We can blame his buddy George for that one. Oh, God. So, like, it's just early 2000s of just some bullshit. People were trying shit and it that's, wasn't good. That's fine. Oh, no, 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 no. When you're throwing spaghetti at the wall, that's not a great time to watch shit. No, I'm fine with the trying shit. <laughs> I'm not going to be mad about the trying shit. But not when you're Steven Spielberg. But I'm not letting you off the hook just because you're Steven Spielberg. Like, you didn't deserve, like... You've been making movies for, like, nearly 40 years at this point. Come on, dude. Do better. No. Okay, well, he prepped the film for three years. Okay, that makes sense because, yeah, the techie yeah. stuff. He had a team of 16 experts in future technology to map out the year 2054. Okay. And I actually remember reading an article about this somewhere. He had the head editor of Wired as one oh, of okay. the, the crew, and I think they wrote an article about all this. That's cool. But he got people from all sorts of different divisions. And, Industries, yeah. And sciences and different things to figure out what this was all going to look like. Out of some of that planning, he admitted jetpacks were not a likely technology to actually be created, but he kept it in because it was one of his sci-fi loves from childhood. I think that's that's fair. Yeah. That does not make me mad. 
They weren't widely available at the time, but now gesture control and eye fingerprint recognition are very common technologies. That's where this movie does ring true. There's a lot of stuff with the targeted advertising, Mm -hmm. with the gesture control, eye fingerprints, even to a very small extent, maglev stuff. Like it's not our main mode of transportation, but that is something that got developed over time. And they actually caught with Lexus and some car companies to envision what magnetic levitation cars would look like in the future. I think they look really cool. I like the magnetic highway stuff. And while, you know, supernatural pre-crime recognition is not a thing, we do use predictive crime patterning in policing, which is not great. It's not great, but I understand it. He did plan on making this movie earlier, but because of different script issues and a certain film called Mission Impossible 2 running way over schedule, Hmm. he decided to take on AI instead. And then do this movie. Yeah, that's he's coming off of AI. God, that fuck. And see, that movie was colorful as fuck. It was. God damn, I hate that movie. I think that's the movie I've hated my experience watching the most. Mm. But this led to an entirely different cast. So we will have very interesting who could have been betters. Because mm. they had a cast in place. Mm. And they had to change it all. And they wound up readjusting when they decided not to do this. Fucking Mission Impossible. This is Steven's first film for 20th Century Fox. Mm. So this was a pivot for him. Okay. The spiders were developed from the imagining of what a grenade might look like if designed by Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bizarre concept, but okay. They're I like sleek. The I get it. I I do get it. Spielberg, working with his regular director of photography, Janusz Kaminski, told him he wanted to make, quote, the ugliest, dirtiest movie either of them had ever made. You failed. (laughs) No! It's so smoothed over. Like, in one scene, I can feel, it feels dirty, but it's still not worth it. He needed Seven by David Fincher. Sorry, Sevenin, that's how you say it. He needed that kind of filmmaking. Yeah. He needed it to be that dirty. Yeah. And instead, they thought by doing this bleach bypass, by bleaching the silver halide crystals, which is a cool effect, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But that silver tint, they thought, well, that makes it dirty and grimy. And I was like, no, you have halo effects all the Here, fucking way through this movie. He's been rich too long at this point. He doesn't know what dirty is. Why did David Fincher not make this movie? Because he was making Fight Club? I don't know. No. He was getting ready for Zodiac. <laughs> that movie took forever to make, too, I think. And it was great. Speaking of Sasevenin, he hired the company Imaginary Forces to do the pre-vision sequences. Okay. Which have that look. Why? Because they did the title sequences for Seven. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hate it. It makes me twitchy. You couldn't have just looked over there for a movie made in 1995. Yeah. I'm like, let's do that. <sighs> Who could have been better? Mm. Jan de Bont, the director of Speed and Twister, was in Slate to direct this film. Mm. He was the original director, but after his film The Haunting failed, they let him go. Okay. And then Cruz was already attached, so Spielberg jumped at it because he was like, I haven't gotten to work with him. Fair. And you know what? I'm cool with that. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's fine. That doesn't bother me. But somehow DeBont got an executive producer credit on the film, which Spielberg actually got pretty upset about. And his reasoning was like, he did no work on the film at all. Uh huh. Once he left the project, it was like, he wasn't ever fucking there. Why is he even remotely a producer? Like, he was originally attached to direct. Now he's not. <laughs> Probably some contract that he's... I'm sure, but he he was very publicly questioning his credit of just like he did fucking nothing on this movie. Yeah, don't don't let Stephen uh, not like. Yeah, it's just bad. bad. With the amount of technical work that they did on this film and preparation in Mm. terms of the design, I think that's where he goes. And I think the the one good place of that logic was like. A lot of people worked really fucking hard on this movie uh-huh. for you to get a top bill credit on it. Yeah. And do fucking nothing. Yeah. If you worked on it, if you did some stuff, and then you wound up leaving, I'm, I don't care. 
Sure. But when you're just gone from the project forever and you still get a top line credit over people who did a lot more work than you. I understand asking the question, but it seems like. Why is he public about it? We have a history of Steven doing shit like this. And it's just like, you know, especially at this point in his career, it's like, Steven, you are not going to lose any of your money or clout because of this. You want to go ask the, ex- the executives at the studio? You go right ahead. That is your right as the director of this film. Publicly, you're just making yourself out to be an ass. Because it's literally no skin off your back. Just take some of that fucking DreamWorks money and pay people. Yeah, I mean, who cares? Most people don't give a shit. They're just like, yeah, just pay me some more money. I don't care. Yeah, no, no one cares. <laughs> All right, well, now we get to our cast. Okay. And we're going to talk first about Tom Cruise as Chief John Anderton. I'm not listing his credits. It's Tom fucking Cruise. We know Tom Cruise. If you don't know him from movies, you know him from being absolutely bonkers. Yeah. You know him from his affiliation to a certain institution. That we like to talk about on this show from time to time. Uh, We like to dunk on the Church of Scientology because I will always dunk on the Church of Scientology. They're garbage. They're cult. What do we think of Tom Cruise in this movie? He's crap. Tom Cruise needs direction. He needs a good script and direction he can he can have a bad script if he's got good direction and he can have bad direction if he's got a good script he can he can't have neither like there's, there's got to be something there for him to like, chew on. he's a charismatic guy and he can improv and he can joke and he can he can chill but there has to be a plan f- set forth for him he, like bless his heart it seems like he's trying oh, he's, he always tries yeah it's tom cruise it's tom cruise that is the way of the scientologist but no. <laughs> At no point do I ever get the vibe that he is horribly damaged. I can see him reaching for it so much, but he never, ever gets there. I don't think he can do it. I don't <sighs> think he can do damage. Like, you know what, though? Collateral. And I know that that's sort of a different thing. I've never seen that. He does it. He pulls off. I mean, he's a sociopath in that movie. But he pulls off convincingly a man who is not built on charm. He is built on raw power and darkness. And it's very different. But see, Tom Cruise is made of darkness. <laughs> I, I get it. But it's like, there's there's wells for him to tap into mm. to do this role. Well, and he's never there. Well, there's too much going on. And it's just, it's awful. He's not very good. And then it's very... When they change his eyes, I'm just like, I don't know who I'm looking at anymore. This is creepy. It's also just so deflating because he's the movie. Like he's, the whole, he is the whole fucking movie. And the other part is like, Tom Cruise is supposed to be a charming guy. He's a charming guy. Oh, yeah. And so you cast him in this role where he's your lead and he's horrible at this. He's supposed to be completely uncharming. Yeah. And aloof. Now, you put him in the Colin Farrell role, he wins. Oh, my God. He could have won. He would have shined so well. And now, switch the two, we win. I mean, I don't think Colin Farrell's good in in this role, but I think you need a slightly older actor. I think you need a guy like Bruce Willis. No. Switch those two guys. Colin Farrell can do gritty as fuck. Not at this point. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Uh, He could. He's scrappy. He could. But switch the two, and it could have been so much better. There are lots of other actors who could do this and have the vibe you needed. And I think going along with the whole, he's a mid-level bureaucrat, mm-hmm. or you know, he he is this chief character, but he's like this beleaguered officer who's haunted by his past that you don't even have to know, and he's a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Like, let's actually lean into that a tiny bit. But Tom Cruise was attached, so... He actually got to set only a few days after Vanilla Sky wrapped. Okay. So he was off one movie and on to another. Yep. This is his first time working directly with Steven Spielberg. Spielberg was actually a producer on Risky Business, and that was the first time they met. He was actually supposed to direct Rain Man, but then Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade got green. Okay. And so he had to step out of that. So they'd actually like almost run into working with each other. And finally, I think Spielberg was like, I like this guy. I know he's great. Want to work with him. This is during the divorce filings with Nicole and during his brief romance with Penelope Cruz. 
In the scene where he's holding his breath in the bathtub, Spielberg intended to create the air bubble with CGI. Instead, Tom Cruise learned how to do that and did it himself. Yep. On his own, because he's Tom fucking Cruise. Tom fucking Cruise. Well, now we get to Colin Farrell playing Danny Whitwer. Okay. Before this, Colin Farrell was in Ballet Kiss Angel on television, Ordinary Decent Criminal, American Outlaws, and Hearts War. After this, Phone Booth, The Recruit, Daredevil, SWAT, Alexander, The New World, 2006's Miami Vice, In Bruges, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, On Dean, Crazy Heart, The Way Back, Horrible Bosses, 2011's Fright Night remake, 2012's Total Recall remake, Seven Psychopaths, dot dot dot, Saving Mr. Banks, Winter's Tale, Miss Julie in 2014, The Lobster, True Detective Season 2, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Widows, 2019's Dumbo, The Gentleman, and Artemis Fowl, and he is currently filming The Batten as The Penguin. Yeah, as well, a couple parts. What do we think of Colin Farrell in this movie? Eh, he's boring. He's green. He's, I mean, this is the film that broke him. That really introduced him to America. I think he's fascinating. I think he's doing really interesting things. It's just that none of it has anything to do with this movie. Well, he's completely underutilized. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, I keep watching this movie going like, he's so cool as a character. Mm -hmm. And also, here's the one thing for Colin Farrell. He seems to be the only fucking person in this movie who realizes they're in a film noir. Oh, 100%. Because he's acting his ass off in that detective role. Yeah, he's like, I'm supposed to be very suspicious of everything that's going on. He's talking a mile a minute. Mm -hmm. He's got that hard-boiled gumshoe attitude with that wrinkle of being like devoutly a man of faith. Yes, I'm. And he's his whole thing is like, I'm supposed to be slightly obvious that you're supposed to suspect that I'm the problem. Yeah. Like, he knows. I'm supposed to make you think I'm the issue. I should be the biggest red herring in the room. Out of everybody in this movie, he's the one who actually gets his fucking character. Yeah, he does. And it sucks because you're just going like, why can't I just have a movie about him? Mm -hmm. Also, put him in more detective roles. Yeah. Because he's really good at it. Who could have been better? Mm. Matt Damon, Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. Bardem supposedly turned this down because he, quote, didn't want to just run around chasing Tom Cruise, unquote. Fair. Totally fair. Next up, Max von Sydow as director Lamar Burgess. Mm. This is a Swedish legend Mm -hmm. turned Hollywood character actor legend. Yeah. One of the few European stars to make that pivot and then just be just as well regarded. Mm -hmm. So before this, He was in 1951's Miss Julie, The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, The Virgin Spring, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, all of those Ingmar Bergman films. Okay. Then, The Greatest Story Ever Told, 1967's The Diary of Anne Frank, The Exorcist, Three Days of the Condor, Voyage of the Damned, Exorcist II, The Heretic, Flash Gordon, Victory, Conan the Barbarian, Strange Brew, Never Say Never Again, He's Blofeld. 1984's Dune, Hannah and Her Sisters, Ghostbusters 2, Awakenings, A Kiss Before Dying, Judge Dredd, What Dreams May Come, and Snow Falling on Cedars. Wow. After this, he's in a 2005 remake of Heidi, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Rush Hour 3, The Tudors, Shutter Island, 2010's Robin Hood, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, and Game of Thrones. And I believe he just recently passed away. Mm, that's sad. What do we think of Max von Sydow in this movie? I don't love him in this movie. I think he's the wrong tone. Here's the thing. He can convincingly pull like a British expat or something like that. Sure. But he's very Swedish. Mm-hmm. And that's not, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a slight against him. It works when you need a vaguely European or British presence sure. in your movie because he's never going to be convincing as an american no why the fuck is he a dc police chief exactly <laughs> like it it doesn't make sense and it's a little like who are you unless you're going to specifically give us some context which one scene could have given this to us yeah 
I don't think it's his fault. But like, if we just have one scene where it explains that, you know, he has come in, they, they did trials, he's a doctor or something out of Europe. Or he's the he's heading up this program because he developed the technology. Exactly. Which he does not have to be an American because like we know America, you have to be American. Blah, 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 blah. We're in charge of everything. Whatever. I mean, we have a long, rich history of hiring European people to do our science for us, but they don't give us anything. So then we're just left there being like, why is this super Swedish dude a, a police bureau chief? I don't get it. I yeah. don't get it. It's just a little strange. So yeah, we, we, yeah, it's weird. It throws you off from the very beginning. And then you're just left with like a guy with strong presence, which good for him. But what does that do for us? Yeah. Who could have been better? Ian McKellen. Yep. Pretty sure he turned this down because Lord of the Rings Rings. was beckoning. I mean, and we would have had the same problem, British guy, but it would have been less annoying. I don't know. Ian McKellen changing his stuff up and being like, no, I'm going to try an accent. I'm going to try American myself up. I mean, Ian McKellen. I would love to see it. I I would too. Ian McKellen can do no wrong. But yeah, here's the thing. Max von Sydow's presence is perfect. Sure. But explain it. Agreed. Agreed. And finally, for our main cast, Samantha Morton as Agatha. Mm-hmm. Before this, she was in the television version of Emma from 1996 and the television version of Jane Eyre from 1997 mm-hmm. and also the film Sweet and Lowdown. After this, she was in In America, Code 46, The Libertine, 2005's Lassie, Control, Mr. Lonely, Elizabeth the Golden Age. She plays Mary Stewart. Synecdoche, New York, The Messenger, John Carter, Miss Julie from 2014, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Harlots, The Walking Dead very recently, and she's in the Sandman audio drum, which is coming soon. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Samantha Morton? Uh, she's lovely. Also very good. She's very good because she has such a, she's such a bizarre role. She has a very specific look mm-hmm. and you just have to accept that. And she she's fabulous. You ju- everything reads that this is a person who has been very intensely drugged. Yes. And has to constantly relive horrible trauma. They're a raw nerve. She got the gravity of her character. And it's not made twee or precious, which would have been so easy to do. Well, and in a movie that seemed like it was headed that direction at every moment, yes, she kept it fucking grounded. She did. Because she understood that, that Agatha could be a very truly sympathetic and well-rounded character. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. God. Who could have been better? And again, all these who could have been better were people that were like actually going to be in the movie. Sure. Kate Blanchett. Oh, sure. Also would have done the same thing. But I like Samantha Morton. She does a great I, job. She, and I like that she's was more unno- she was unknown. A little bit, yeah. And then we have so many fucking Arpons. We do. We have a lot of Arpons in this film. So many point at the television. Ah! Yeah, I, literally. So let's roll through them. Neil McDonough as Fletcher. Mm-hmm. Every television show known to man he has been on. Yep, pretty much. Steve Harris playing Jad. He was on The Practice and Friday Night Lights. Yep. Jessica Capshaw as Ivana. Mm-hmm. This is Arizona Robbins from Grey's Anatomy. Also the daughter of Kate Capshaw before Stephen married her. Yeah. Frank Grillo as one of the pre-crime cops. You might know him as Brock Rumlow from the Avengers verse. Mm-hmm. Eugene Osment as Jad's technician. He is the father of Haley Joel Osment. Yep. Jim Rash, a.k.a. Dean Pelton, is a technician in this movie. Oh, yeah, that is him. Lois Smith playing Dr. Iris Heineman. You might recognize her from Lady Bird and as Meg Green in Twister. Who could have been better for this role? Meryl fucking Streep. Really? Interesting. Weird stunt casting for a character that's not in this movie very much. That, that is a little weird. I like getting a character actor for that role instead. Agreed. Tim Blake Nelson playing Gideon. Love him. Of course, you know him from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Lots of Coen Brothers stuff. Catherine Morris playing Laura Clark. You might know her as the lead from Cold Case. Oh, okay. Plays uh, Tom Cruise's wife in this movie. Who could have been better? Jenna Elfman. Oh, not surprising. A fellow Scientologist. See. Peter Stormare playing Dr. Solomon Eddy. I always forget who he is when I see him. He's been in so many of her movies. Weird chameleon in that he's not that much of a chameleon. 
Like, I know his face, but I forget his name. They change his hair so often. Yes. And he manages to blend in just by shifting his hair. Mm-hmm. He's made an appearance in several movies we've watched for this show. Most recently, John Wick 2. Oh, yes. Caroline Lagerfeld playing Greta Van Eyck, the assistant to Dr. Solomon. You might know her as a mom on Gossip Girl. William Mapather as the hotel clerk. It's the cruise cousin. Bonnie Morgan playing the contortionist in the yoga studio. She's been a contortionist in a lot of different things, but you really know her best as Samara from The Ring. Ah, oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. Steven actually hired 12 of the best contortionists in the U.S. for this scene specifically. Cool. And then, as passenger on the train, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes, that Paul Thomas Anderson. What? Oh, as bus passengers, how about Cameron Crowe and Cameron Diaz? What? (laughs) I think this was just Tom, like, inviting some people he'd worked with to come to set. Because he'd just gotten done with Magnolia. Sure. And then he'd also literally days before gotten done with Vanilla Sky. Sure. Yeah, no, that all makes sense, but I'm just like, But they're all in the movie. What? I told you there were lots of Arpons. Jesus. <laughs> Why couldn't this movie have been better? Exactly. Why couldn't Paul Thomas Anderson make this movie? Mm. Or Cameron Crowe. I'll give Cameron Crowe a crack at it. Uh, he can't do stuff. Okay, fair. But P.T. Anderson. Mm. Precogs and pre-crime and sci-fi. I want to see that man make one sci-fi movie in his life. Just one. Okay. Let me see what he does. I'll allow it. Trivia. The precogs are all named after famous mystery writers. We have Dashiell Hammett, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, okay, and Agatha Christie. It's very on the nose. It kind of makes me want to throw up. <laughs> Spielberg wanted Greta, Dr. Eddie's assistant, to sing an ABBA song because they're from Sweden. Okay. But Stormare thought it should be a little more absurd. So instead, he suggested the Swedish children's song, Smagradorna, the small frogs, that is sung on Midsummer Eve parties in Sweden. I, I like the fact that Peter Stormare went, okay, hold on. If you really want it to be weird, let's just sing a song that only super Swedish people would know. Yeah. No, like, <laughs> like, if you're, if you're going to do this, let's do it. Let's make it really fucking weird and creepy. Yeah, let's go for it. Well, I vaguely threaten this man as I'm about to take his eyeballs out. Product placement. Because, oh, there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. Nokia supposedly spent $2 million dollars to have Nokia handsets placed throughout the movie. Sure. Lexus supposedly paid $5 million to be the futuristic vehicles in the film. Hmm. Spielberg also apparently negotiated a $62,000 Lexus SC430 convertible Mm -hmm. as part of the contract with them for him to have, which like, I guess good for you, man. Lexus provided some design elements for the cars, but the bulk of it was actually created by Harold Belker, who created vehicles for Armageddon and Triple X. Okay. The police hovership was nicknamed the Dispenser, since it looked like a giant Pez dispenser. Okay. To get the sound of the maglev cars, sound designer Gary Ridstrom used the sounds of his washing machine, manipulated and slowed down. And when Whitworth asks, how much time do we have, and is told, 51 minutes 30 seconds before Anderton's murder of the dude. That is exactly the amount of time left in the film. This movie really kind of does take place in real time. I appreciate that. However, it's still bad. Yeah. Also, uh, Oscar. Oh. Yeah. It got nominated for an Oscar. Of course it did. For best sound editing. I'll allow it. (laughs) This sounds really good. Like, I'm not going to give him flack for that. And that gets us to our ratings. Okay. (laughs) I mean, eyeballs make the most sense. Okay. Creepy identifying eyeballs. I mean, it's just... Or red ball. We could do a red ball. Murder ball. Okay, I'll go with a red ball. All right. This is my movie. Okay. I've seen it before. I used to really like this movie. Like, I really did. Okay. Which at the time, I feel like was just, wow, this is so cool what they're doing. And I was always really into Mm sci-fi. This is a fucking disaster. It's not good. But... It's not as bad as a disaster as some things I've seen, and I still do appreciate some of the like base level vision they had for it. Okay. I just hate the script and the story of it. I just 
hate the movie. <laughs> no, I I really like the concept and idea that they have here. I don't like where they take it. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a two. Two red balls. Alright, I'm I'm gonna go one and a half. Okay. Because it's just not good. Why did people think this was so good? Why did I think this was so good? You were young and dumb. <sighs> you know that. Well, from a kind of trash fire of a movie to Oscar bait supreme we go. Yeah, biopic central. I mean, can we blame Stephen for making this movie? No. This I'm... is ch- this is so quintessential him. Especially in these last few years, it seems to be like, well, we need someone to make this type of movie. Where's Steven Spielberg? We're, of course, talking about Lincoln. Yeah. I'm not even mad about that. It's something he's proven he can do really well. Yeah. So, like, again, let's work to this man's talents. Yeah, let's 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 see him do what he does well. And, you know, all the wild-ass shit, just let him produce, because that's what he's better at for those. Well, and the thing is, he is a good producer. He's an amazing producer. He Be- really is. Because here, okay, and one of the things that I think that we've, one thing that I think that is very true is that he is a problem solver. Yeah. He is a really good idea guy and problem solver. And that is, while being the director, having that skill set is great, you are too close to the picture. Yeah. Like the actual picture. And if you're the producer, you get to sit back and you kind of see, well, hey, the director's so focused on this thing going over here that they probably aren't seeing this thing that's happening over here. And as a producer, you may be in a position to help step in and mitigate a different issue. Which is why people have such glowing things to say about him, working with him. And I think it's because when he is in that producer role, he's just such a good, calm voice. I would believe that. That quote from Truffaut, which is just like, I cannot imagine how calm and collected he is given circumstances that would make other directors quit on the spot. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, okay, let's figure it out. <laughs> Like that's a super that's a superpower. That's what he does best. Well, I do have a lot of respect for that. Until next time. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.